The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm Elise Cortez, and I certainly have enjoyed serving as your host. I find myself constantly on the lookout for people with an interesting story to share or a perspective to lend who I think you may appreciate. I've learned through my own research on meaning, meaning in work and relation to identity that many people hunger for a meaningful life and work that goes along with it. They're seeking purpose, and when they find it, they often experience a strong sense of, of peace and, and even happiness. So as you know by now, if you've been listening in, I look for guests to bring on the show who are meaningfully connected to their own work so we can learn something about their path to getting there and really understand how and why the work is meaningful to them. Those kinds of conversations can help raise the consciousness among some of the things that may be missing in our own lives or sometimes help us feel grateful for the blessings we do have. I also look for authors who have a perspective on the subject that I either agree with or I feel can contribute to the dialogue about working on purpose in some meaningful way. So this week, we get a twofer, as I like to say. <laughs> we get to fulfill both of those criteria in one guest, as we get to talk with Dr. Ted Fisher, who is a professor of anthropology at the Vanderbilt University and an author of various books, including, most recently, The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. He is also the founder of Manny Plu, a, man- a program in-, in Guatemala that develops and produces locally sourced complementary foods to fight malnutrition. The guy's a little bit busy. <laughs> so as you as you know by now, I like to say how I find my guest, and this time I have to credit my dear husband, Roberto Cortez, who found Ted for me. Roberto works for Deloitte and had the opportunity to serve as a judge of a Vanderbilt case competition, evaluating his, his Nutri-Plu business plan and what, it, what to do going forward. So that's how I found him, reached out to him and said, hey, what do you think? Love your work. Will you be on my show? And he said, yes. So here he is. Ted, welcome to the show. Elise, so happy to be here. Uh, I love what you're doing, and I'm I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, I've got a ton of questions for you, so hopefully we'll, we're going to f- fly through them in the next hour or so here. But just first things first, quick introduction. I want to make sure and let you cue up how it is you normally introduce yourself and the work you're doing at Vanderbilt. So start there if you would, and then we'll dr- we'll dr- drill down deeper later. Super. Uh, so I'm an anthropologist, and actually, often when I tell people I'm an anthropologist, they will ask, so have you dug up any exciting cities lately? And I say, well, I'm not that kind of anthropologist. My archaeology <laughs> colleagues are in the jungle with their machetes and pith helmets and discovering lost civilizations, and I'm the flavor of anthropologist that works with living people, people who can talk back. Uh, and so here at Vanderbilt, I'm a professor of anthropology. I teach. I I love teaching, I research, uh, and I run a, our Center for Latin American Studies. Um, 
I, I, I will say anthropology, it's again, it's one of those things that a lot of people uh, may have taken a class in college or have some impression of. Uh, it is... I was explaining to your husband, actually, it's a lot like uh, business consulting in a way. Uh, the idea behind anthropology is that an outsider can sometimes see things that we as insiders can't see ourselves. And so an anthropologist goes there, and there might be, you know, around the world in the middle of the Amazon, or it could be just down the street to an organization to see how other people live their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, what I love about that, Ted, is I can totally appreciate that because even the work that I do as a meaning work researcher, when I snuggle with somebody to talk about their lives and their work, I can see something from the outside that, that maybe they, they know but haven't really articulated before. So in some way, I, I think I can approximate what you're, what you're talking about in my own work, which is fun, too. Exactly right. And in fact, I would say that many people, many of us, are professional anthropologists, right? We're sort of mm-hmm. uh, ju- judging the world around us, trying to figure it out, what motivates other people, and, and living our lives based on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's really yummy work, but that's just me. I can actually talk <laughs> to too. anybody at any party at any time, right? I, that's just who I am. So you want to run from me if you see me coming to you at a party. Just know that in advance, okay? <laughs> okay, one other thing about you that I think is really intriguing that I didn't know until I looked up some of your articles is that you're also a well-being, well-being advisor to the World Health Organization. What does that mean, and what does that role entail? Uh, it's true. It's uh, we in academics. We're we're very fond of titles, right? So we can collect lots <laughs> of fancy titles. Our our pay doesn't always reflect that, but uh, at least we have the the prestige of a title. And I have I've been working with the World Health Organization Europe, uh, who is very much concerned with what well being is. So the World Health Organization. This is actually very interesting. They defined health when they were founded in 1948 as health is not just the absence of illness, but it is the presence of physical, psychological, and social well-being. And Mm. if you think about health in this more holistic uh, way, it actually changes things that we might do in terms of a healthcare system or or in our own lives, really. And I think we're starting to realize that. We you hear more and more complaints about the assembly line health system here in the United States that doesn't treat individuals as complete individuals. We, we're an appendix or we're a pair of lungs or, you know, we're this or that illness to the specialists that we see. And too uh, rarely are we a whole person whose brain is tied to that appendix, right? <laughs> I'm so glad uh, I asked that question. How delicious was that? I didn't expect that, didn't know any of that. That's, I think that's amazing. And, and you're right, the wholeness piece is very intriguing to me. Absolutely, and and we are uh, people. I actually had dinner with a doctor last night, and he was saying the same thing that we, uh, many of his patients come in and just sort of having a consultation. If he can have the time to sit there and talk with them and talk through their problems, that's often enough without even prescribing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can learn so much. One of the things I even got from my own research is just that if you ask really good questions, it's amazing what you can learn about somebody in a short exactly. amount of time. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, 
Now, speaking of that, I mean, you have had a, a long career and a distinguished career already here for quite some time now. I love to know how people actually get into their careers, Ted. I mean, how did you choose anthropology? Why that? What's your story? Why did you choose that and, and become a professor as well? Well, it's uh, I, I, some would say that I have had an illustrious career, but I have to say that it, it started from from very humble beginnings. I uh, as a in high school, and I was a, a photographer. I was the school newspaper photographer, and when I started college, I thought I wanted to be some sort of a journalist, uh, a photojournalist, or, or a regular journalist. But I ended up actually, you know, majoring in uh, social activities my first year or so of school and did not do very well at all. And in fact, was uh, was kicked out of college. I started at a small liberal arts school called Birmingham Southern College. I was kicked out of school after a year and a half. Uh, my parents... Uh, said, okay, well, you, you know, if you're not going to go to college, you need to start making a living. I started tending bar, uh, and as sort of a rehabilitative measure, my parents offered to send me on a, uh, a church mission trip uh, to Guatemala, and I went down as the photographer for this uh, trip, and I went to this country. I grew up in southern Alabama, so I've always been sensitive to issues of you know, racial inequalities and inclusion and, and things like that. And I go to this country. It's a beautiful little country, just dramatic landscapes, just, you know, luscious visually in all sorts of ways. Uh, and a country that is half Mayan Indians and half non-Maya. And the Maya really have a hard time in, in Guatemala, not unlike the southern Alabama of the early 70s where I was growing up with African-American populations. So it spoke to me in some way and spoke to the side of me that wanted to be a journalist or wanted to be a photojournalist. I came back uh, and I enrolled in an anthropology class and everything just seemed to click. Uh, this was a, a, a tool, uh, this discipline of anthropology, a tool for, for understanding these, these other peoples and then maybe trying to, you know, make a small difference in, in people's lives. Uh, and so that's what pulled me into anthropology. Uh, I've also always had a, uh, an entrepreneurial side to me. And so actually, mm-hmm. as I was doing that, I was tending bar, I was taking anthropology classes. This is in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was going back and forth to Guatemala, bringing back uh, little textiles and things like that. So a couple of friends and I started a, this was back in the days when mail order was real mail order. You cut out a, uh, you know, a coupon from a magazine and you filled it out and sent a check or a money order. And, uh, uh, we sold uh, teenage girls uh, berets and worry dolls and things like that from Guatemala, and that's the way I paid for the rest of my college college tuition. Oh my gosh, what a great story, Ted! I had no idea. I'm so glad I asked that question. What a great story! And you know, for those of us who have been out there, been out there and gone the circuitous route, I hope that's encouraging to those of you out there listening, because it sure is to me. There's hope for me yet. You mean? Absolutely, that's right. And so these dead ends, they they don't have to be a dead end. Uh, and part of that is the way in which you perceive it. It sounds a little cliche to say that every problem is an, is an opportunity, uh, but truly, if you decide not to be beaten down by when life serves you lemons, you can change things. 
Mm-hmm. I have learned the importance of perspective in my research, Ted, for sure. They, just changing your mindset about something can powerfully change the meaning and improve the meaning drastically of your experiences. I found that in my research, too, so I get that. Absolutely. So you're teaching. Let's talk about that. I do a little bit of teaching for the University of Phoenix and also in the fall, Southern Methodist University, and I love it, but everybody loves it for a different reason I've come to realize. So what do you enjoy about teaching? What's meaningful for you about it, and why are those things maybe important to you? Well, I think uh, probably for some of the same reasons that they are for you in the sense that we like being, uh, you know, it's, it's teaching is being in service to your students in some way, and that is can be deeply rewarding. Uh, I was just reading an article last night in the uh, current issue of the, of the Atlantic about how giving sort of uh, releases certain kinds of endorphins and things in our mm-hmm. brain. So I think in being in some sort of a service profession like the service to humanity profession is, is rewarding. I like being around young people, people with different ideas. Uh, and I think like a lot of us, uh, maybe you included, I, I'm a little bit of a frustrated actor, a little bit of a ham, don't mind getting in front of an audience. Uh, and so <laughs> teaching, you're able to combine all of these things, right? You're able to lift people up, hopefully, uh, able to, to expand their horizons and, you know, feed our own desire to, uh, to show off a little bit, I guess. That is so fun. I guess I can I can relate to most of that. Uh, another reason that I also love to teach personally is that it's a way for me to keep learning as well. So that's part of my my draw. And I know you do that all the time in the work that you do, but that that's a big draw for me as I learn from my students, I learn from the content. I love the exchange. So I, I think we're probably on similar pages there. That's a really good point, and I had not thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And that takes, a, I think, a, a self-confidence and a humility to be able to do that, right? Because if you're, mm-hmm. if you're too insecure, you can't learn from your students because you're too worried about showing them everything that you know. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Sort of being able to, uh, to learn from the people that we're teaching is, is very important. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Well, speaking of learning, I have to say I so enjoyed uh, the read of your book, your most recent book, The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and Anthropology of Well-Being. And I got to tell you, Ted, I did most of the reading on an airplane. So you have to, manage this, have to imagine this scenario. So I've got the book open. I always use pencil to highlight what I think is interesting. And I'm frantically underlining phrases and kind of murmuring to myself some points that I'm thinking. And the, the people next to me are thinking, she is weird. She's crazy. I'm next to a lunatic. But that is what you did to me. So thank you very much for that. You've embarrassed me publicly. (laughs) (laughs) But I was very, very intrigued to read it because, what? I'm sorry? We can all relate. Uh, okay, good. I mean, I, of course, you know, I'm the, that's the you know eternal geek in me, but I just loved it. And I was really intrigued to read it because it does focus on well-being, meaning, and purpose, all the things that I really care about. And I've been in some way or another trying to research for myself. And so um, I want to ask you first, where to get the idea of the book from? And, and also, what is it you're trying to convey? I think I have some ideas because I'm going to ask you some certain things, but where the idea come from and what are you trying to convey? Yeah, well, the the idea came from... So I've done a lot of my work in Guatemala. I've worked in, in Mozambique, and I've done a lot of work in Germany, too. But a lot of my work has been in Guatemala. And Guatemala, is a, it's a pretty poor country. As I mentioned before, you have half of the country are Mayan Indians. And yet, 
I, and I've spent lots of time down there. I've, I've lived there for a couple of years. I, I go down all the time. And there is something even in the midst of the poverty that you see in a place like Guatemala, there's something that we don't have. And you, we hear this a lot, right, when people take trips and they go somewhere exotic and they say the people were so poor but they were happy. Uh, and it seems a little trite when you, when you hear it that way, but there is, there's truth to that, that mm-hmm. people in these places that are materially poorer than we are, uh, they've got something that we've lost. And so I started thinking about, well then, what is the good life? I mean, it, growing up in the states and in in the culture and the consumer culture and the career culture in which we we are uh, we find ourselves, it's often about getting something more. Uh, it's about you know that that car that I want or that raise that I need or or whatever it may be. And so I started thinking, does everybody think that way around the world? Maybe there are different conceptions of the good life. And what are the elements uh, that, that, that people seek? Uh, and that was really the origin of that. It was saying, okay, there are, there are miserable millionaires here in the States, and there are very happy, uh, high well-being Mayan peasants in Guatemala. How do we reconcile that? Got it. Oh, my gosh. That is a wonderful. I'm going to comment about that after the break here because I have some other experience relative to it. But it is time for our very first break. So hang with us. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Ted Fisher of the Vanderbilt University and author of The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. After the break, I want to hear more about where this thing came from and what you're trying to convey. Stay with us. up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit VoiceAmerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. 
To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Professor Ted Fisher of Vanderbilt University and the author of The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. I'm Elise Cortez, your host, and I want to pick up where we left off. You were telling us about where this idea came from for this recent book and talking about how in Guatemala you realized that though they maybe were poor in materiality, they were rich in other ways. I think that's very interesting. I could relate to that because I found the same thing when I lived in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in the early 1990s for two years. So that's a fascinating concept in and of itself. So say more about where the book came from and what it is you're trying to convey in it. Well, let me just say that Rio is another place that you, it would be a wonderful place to explore that. And people often say, oh, the people who live in Rio, they're so happy and, and carefree. And yet, you know, it's an incredibly violent city. It's a city with yeah. a lot of poverty. And so mm-hmm. what is going on there? Uh, and it's true. So we, what, what, there are a few elements when we're trying to deconstruct what is well-being or what is the good life. You need money. I mean, that's, we, we need money to survive. We need to eat. There are some basic material things that we need. But once we've satisfied those, our material wants uh, often are not as important as we think that they are. And so we Mm -hmm. can say that there are a few things that everybody needs. Everybody needs uh, a minimal amount of income. And that would vary, right? If you're uh, living in Orange County, uh, what your minimal level of income is going to be very different than if you're living in, uh, you know, southern Sudan. Uh, But whatever it is, you've got a minimal level of income. You you need your health and you need your physical security. Uh, But beyond that, family and Social networks are very, very important, and some of this comes back to we have lots of cliches about this, right? Nobody on their deathbed ever wished that they had spent an extra hour at the office, right? And we say these things, so we sort of recognize this in some way in our culture, uh, and yet it's hard for us to follow through uh, day in and day out. You know, I, I would like a ray. I would like to make more money. We would all like to make a little bit more money. But if we, if we hang all of our hopes on that, I think we're setting ourselves up for disappointment in the long run. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I've experienced it myself, both, both you know, making lots of money and, and also not making as much, but loving the work that I do. I'll take the latter any day. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and so in this book, what I did was I, uh, I said, well, let's take two very different places. And my wife is from Germany, and so we have connections uh-huh. in Germany. Uh-huh. I'm wondering uh, about so- why Germany. That's right. It's, I, I joke with people that I've studied Guatemala and Germany. Next, I'm going to have to go to Ghana or Gambia and just do all the, the G countries because it doesn't seem like there's very much in, in common between these. But that was the idea. Let's take a rich northern European country and let's take a poor Central American country and see what their ideas about living the good life, what they share in common. Uh, and the elements that I've mentioned, uh, a minimal level of income, uh, health, and physical security are very important. And beyond that, the family and the social life, but also a sense of aspiration, that we want something out of life. 
And that can be material things. I would like to own my own house. I would like to, uh, you know, buy a car. Uh, but it can be other things beyond that as well. What we want out of life and that we have a feasible route to get there. So if you were an African-American woman in Montgomery, Alabama in 1943, you might have all the aspirations in the world, but there's no way that you could realize many of those. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that we aspire, but also that we feel like and that we have a a fighting chance to realize those aspirations. And that's what we do great as a country in, in, in some ways, I think. I think that is such an important point you bring up there. It's one thing to be to be motivated and to aspire. It's quite another to have a platform for which to be able to execute toward or from. And I think that's really, really important. I loved how you developed that in the book, by the way. It's very clear. It's very concise. It just, it just makes sense. Thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and those are two sides of the, of the same coin, the, the aspirations and the opportunities. And then I would also say that it's important for uh, the other thing that we often forget is a sense of dignity uh, mm-hmm. that we want to be. And I think this is true of all human beings everywhere, that we would like to be treated with a sense of dignity and fairness. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that it, it, that's not related to the income level of a job, right? We've all met, and I have a particular uh, admiration for people like this, who are working what we might consider to be menial jobs, but who take them seriously. Absolutely. Uh, uh, right. Uh, and I, my brother, for example, my brother never went to college. He started working in railroads. He's a, a, a yard engineer. And he goes down, he will go to work an hour before his shift starts. And he will mm-hmm. see where all the rail cars are on the yard and sort of work out in his mind the the chess game of moving cars around. And it's, you know, he's a blue collar worker. He's, you know, it's not a prestigious job, but he takes it seriously. And he takes pride in doing his job very, very well, and there's a dignity that goes along with that. Oh, and I'll tell you, Ted, you're so speaking my language because the work that I've done as a meaning work researcher, while I haven't looked at blue-collar workers per se, I have looked at 20 different kinds of professions, and you're right, across the gamut, people find a way to impart meaning to their work. That's part of what we seem to be doing as human beings. And yes, the dignity piece is so important, which is another reason I was like, I have to have this man on my show. I so get what he's saying and what how he thinks. <laughs> no, we, we uh, absolutely, we think a lot alike. And so I would like to believe that's because it's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would too. Thank you. Yes, I would too. <laughs> well, uh, and the- Go ahead, Ted. If I could. So my my third piece there, so we have aspirations, we have dignity, uh, and the final and in some ways uh, perhaps most important part of this is uh, a commitment to a larger project. Yes. And by that, uh, I mean it can mean many things. If It can mean if you're a carpenter, you may want to make the best table that you could possibly make and spend years mastering that craft. It could be uh, religious proselytizing. Uh, it could be, you know, we, we are both, you and I are both in professions, I think, that are very amenable to this. I teach young people to, you know, that's, uh, that's a large project in itself. But something that goes beyond our immediate material self-interest. 
Uh, and that's really important. And I guess I should also point out here that that need not be something that we would agree with, right? I mean, you could say that Nazi fervor was also a sort of commitment to a larger project. Uh, so it, it, it need not be good stuff necessarily, but in terms of sensing that there's a larger purpose to our lives is, is very important. Uh, and I, I read a study, uh, this came out a couple of years ago, and I believe it was Gallup who did this, and they were looking at well-being across the political spectrum. And it turned out that people at the far end, the far right end and the far left end, uh, had the highest levels of well-being. And this is a little bit of a conundrum. You would think these people should be frustrated, right? Because the country is not going in the direction that they would like. It's, we're always compromising. Uh, the world is not being made in their vision. And yet I would explain this. Their belief was so strong in this larger project to which they're committed that their, their personal well-being was very high. Mm-hmm. I love stuff like that. I don't think I remember if you've said that in the book. I don't. I didn't catch that part. But that's that's really very interesting. I I, um, I can't be super surprised by that given my own travels. But I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's really important. Very intriguing too. Um, Thanks. Well, and a couple things that I want to I want to call out specifically about your book here that I thought were interesting. I I, I can if you'll indulge me. I want to read a, a specific packet pack, uh, passage that you wrote here and get you to comment on it because to me it gets to a bit of identity, which of course is something I'm hopelessly interested in. And so after I read this, if you would maybe comment on it for me, but um, it really mm-hmm. resonated with me as a as a meaning and work researcher related to identity. So here's what you said on page two: You said, "If well-being is more than just being well, then perhaps the good life is not a state to be obtained, but an ongoing aspiration for something better that." That gives meaning to life's pursuits. In this view, striving for the good life involves the arduous work of becoming, of trying to live a life that one deems worthy, becoming the sort of person that one desires. I think that's about mm-hmm. identity. But say more about that. What does that, what does that phrase, that, the, those two sentences mean to you? Uh, absolutely. Well, first, uh, I think that it is, it's important to see becoming uh, the well-being, living the good life as a journey. There's never a moment, and I think when we're young, we all think that there will be. In my line of work, it's, you know, when you get tenure or when you become full professor or, you know, when you've made it, whatever your metric of having made it is, given your own career, we feel like when you're young, okay, we get to that point and then we're happy. But that's not the way the world works, right? We actually, uh, it, it, it's, the journey is the end uh, in itself. There's not an end that we arrive mm-hmm. to and then we're happy and we live our lives and, you know, the, the violins go up and the, 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 the sun is shining and the rainbow shows through and we live our lives happily ever after. No, it's, uh, it's, 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 arduous, it's hard work. Uh, living the good life. And so that's one thing I think that we need to embrace. It's not, you don't win the lottery and live happily ever after. There was actually a, a study a while back, uh, just sort of hypothetical asking people this question. Uh, but the question was this, and I think it's an interesting one. If you could, if we had a virtual reality chamber that we could put you in, and you could live the perfect life, whatever you wanted to do, uh, and it would seem real to you in your mind in this virtual reality chamber, uh, and you could live a life without hardship, you could live, do everything that you wanted to, to do in your life, would you do that? 
uh, and most people actually asked my class this yesterday, and the, you know, virtually everyone said no. Uh, and I think that gets at this. It's because the hardship, the struggle, is what gives meaning to the accomplishments that we do have. And so if it were all given to us on a silver platter, it would not be nearly as meaningful. Mm-hmm. I have to say two things to that, Ted. This is such a great conversation. One is, I'm sure you probably heard the phrase in, in social psychology or even lifespan development psychology of just manageable difficulty. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I hear that, right? It has to be, you know, hard, but not so hard that, you know, it's going to take us underwater kind of thing. Exactly. Um, and and I had never made that connection, although that's a wonder. Thank you. You're welcome. Isn't this a fun conversation? I mean, like I said, I'm going to keep you on for the next five hours. The listeners won't know what to do, but five hours in, here we go. <laughs> the, Love it. The, the other thing that I wanted to say about that is I also found this in my own research and that I, I did find 15 modes of engagement, and the top few are the ones where people are the most engaged, the most fulfilled, and they put more of themselves or more of themselves is in their work. And when I went back to debrief the conversations with them about the research, what do they think about their mode? Does this describe them accurately? What's it like to be in that mode? Several of them said, well, you know, as you said, it's hard work to be at this particular high level. And sometimes it might be easier to be maybe someplace further down where it isn't as fulfilling. It isn't as much of me as it is. So there's an interesting parallel for me that I found with my research, too, along what you were saying. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um Absolutely. And also with your research, this idea of identity, you're right, this is really crucial, that we are forming ourselves and our view of ourselves, our identity is just as important as as everything else. Uh, I had lunch today with a guy, a coffee guy, I, I do some research in coffee, and he had worked with McDonald's early on uh, when they were trying to put in coffee machines uh, into, you know, like the Mac cafes that they have now. And he said this was the hardest fight because all the McDonald's people said, we sell hamburgers. This was so central to their identity. So identity, it, it has this positive side. It can also constrain us sometimes. And so if we think, oh, I'm a hamburger guy, I can't sell coffee, we might lose opportunities. Uh, and so we need to, identity has those two sides, right? And we need to remain open uh, as well to, to changing our identities, I think. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. And for me, as a learning and development person today, that's exactly what I try to help people do. Is if you don't like where you are, or maybe we could, maybe we could see you in a different fashion. Let's do that together. And that's really what I get to do in the work that I do in workshops, in coaching, and all those sort of things. So yes, I completely agree with you. Absolutely. And just with a little help from you being an outsider, I bet that allows people to sort of see themselves in a slightly different light and 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 open up a bit more. Mm-hmm. I can be a bit like a mirror in some ways. That's a mirror that they're not used to holding up for themselves. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, I find that fascinating. Okay, so we've got just a couple minutes before we go on the next break here. I want to, I want to open up one particular thing that, that, uh, that I think is really important that you do call out in your book here. You talk about you know maybe the key to living a good life. It also includes modifying our social structures. Can you say a little bit about that? That's quite a fascinating idea, I think. Uh, yes, I think that, uh, that we have moved for good reasons, uh, for example, in some parts of the economy, for example, we have moved toward, uh, 
you know, we want to have evidence-based approaches to judging people and metrics. And in teaching, for example, uh, we want to uh, test our teachers and sort of have these objective metrics that people should live up to. And I'm open to these ideas. I think that we can learn a lot from having hard data. At the same time, sometimes there are unintended consequences, especially in uh, professions where there is a strong moral grounding. And if we, if we have people striving for these four or five or six metrics that we say are important, sometimes that can undermine the very moral underpinning of this profession. I've got a very good friend who's a teacher. She's quitting this year, and I'm just heartbroken over it because I think she is a great teacher. But she says, I'm being so micromanaged now by all of these testing regimes, by all of these teacher evaluation regimes, that I can't do right by my students. And so I can't, I can't stay in the class. Room. And I'm not so, coming out Ted, on one side or the other, uh-huh, but, but I think that that's an important point. Sorry about that, Ted. I just wanted to stop you there for a quick. Hold that thought. I want to get the rest of it after the break here. This is our, our next break going into this. I'm Elise Cortez, your host, and I've been on the air here with Dr. Ted Fisher of the Vanderbilt University and author of the book called The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. After the break, I want to get you talking about the program that you, the program and product you created to address malnutrition in Guatemala. We'll be right back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Get motivated. Hear about success stories and positive encouragement. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. 
Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been here on the air with Professor Ted Fisher of Vanderbilt University and the author of The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. Such a great title, by the way, Ted. I love that. Um, you were sharing earlier about your why you wrote the book that you did, some of your perspectives on the social structure change that might go along with it. Now I want to queue up here and hear more about this particular program that you created, which strikes me as just phenomenal. There is a program and a product. I believe that, is it, is it the program that's called Money Plus or is that the product? Uh, actually both. Uh, so okay. uh, Money Plus and we do the, with a, with a plus sign okay. afterward. Uh, it is. So that's right. Money okay. Plus. Uh, so we, we started this in Guatemala uh, partly, and to tie it into our previous conversation, actually, I think one of our moral obligations as human beings is everybody should have a fighting chance from the beginning. Uh, and that's, it's a little bit idealized, right? We're all born into different circumstances. But we don't want to have our children be hampered in some fundamental way from the beginning of their lives. And Guatemala has a very high rate of childhood malnutrition. About half of children under five years old uh, are malnourished. And so seeing this, uh, it, it just touched my heart in some way, and I felt like there was something we need to do uh, to give these kids a, a fighting chance in life. And so we started the, the Money Plus program. And when did you start that? Uh, we started that in uh, 2008-2009. Uh, it actually first started in, I was on a trip to Mozambique. We were looking for economic development opportunities around some clinics that our university runs there. And we saw all of these malnourished kids, and they were... Uh, they were they were being treated with these products that were imported from around the world from the United States and from France and i was I looked at this and I was like, "This is crazy uh, this is all stuff that could be made locally uh, and support the local economy and importing it from Countries, you know, France probably has the highest labor costs in the world. That's just uh, crazy. And so we said, why don't we develop a locally sourced malnutrition intervention that would not only help these kids that are in dire need of more calories and more vitamins and minerals, uh, but also help local farmers create, open up new markets for, for local farmers. 
as it turned out, Mozambique is a really hard place to to do business of of any sort. Uh, and so, while the need is great there, uh, we moved the project to Guatemala, which also has a really high need, uh, and and started working working in in Guatemala. The idea, so the the idea is. Uh, a, a kids need this nutrition, and so how can we deliver it to them? So we have a peanut butter-based product that we fortify. Essentially, the product is peanut paste, sugar, vegetable oil, uh, powdered milk, and a vitamin-mineral mix. And having 40 grams of that a day, not a whole lot, but for kids between six months and uh, two or three years old, it can really change their lives. And so we, we started developing and, and making this product in Guatemala. And I've got to say, when we started, and I, I think if you asked entrepreneurs uh, when they got started, they would probably <laughs> give you a very similar story. I had no idea of how complicated it would be. It sounds really simple, right? I mean, it's, it's, we, we pour a bunch of ingredients in with peanut butter, we mix it up, and we hand it out to kids, and they start growing taller and stronger. Uh, as it turns out, you know, the food science behind this is really complicated. The peanut oil interacts in weird ways with some of the vitamins and minerals. Packaging is, is, you know, it's really easy to package solids. It's really easy to pack liquids. Packing pastes is, you know, it's almost impossible. You have to have special kinds of pumps and so forth. So we started this from a point of ignorance, or we probably would not have started it at all. As is true of so many things that are out there in existence today, right? If I had any idea what I got myself into, I would have never done it in the first place. Right. I, I, I'm holding a packet right here in my hand, Ted. It's it's impressive. It's a white packet with Mani Plus written on top. It says 40 grams on it. So how do the kids eat it? Do they spread it on toast or a tortilla, or do they just eat it out of the package? Uh, that's a great question. They eat it out of the package. So uh, it looks a little bit like a, a large ketchup package. And they it does, yeah. Tear, tear the edge of it and eat it straight out of the package. So a mm. lot of nutrition uh, intervention programs rely on families mixing things with water, for example, or adding sugar to a product. This is very common. And this seems it's an easy way to distribute something. You can just give pounds of powder that people then mix, you know, uh, with sugar and, and water and drink. Uh, but if we think of the poorest of the poor, heating up water to boil it to make it sanitary actually involves a significant cost. You've got to go chop down firewood and burn that firewood. Adding sugar is actually, you know, to us, that we've got a, a, a bowl of sugar on our kitchen table, I'm sure. And yet for families that are eking by, uh, these are significant uh, inputs. So we have a ready-to-use product. The kids just sort of open it up and slurp it down. In Mayan culture and in Latin American culture uh, generally, peanuts are native to Latin America, but they don't eat peanut butter and they don't eat pastes generally. And so mm. mothers, when we started this program, mothers think it's a little gross, as you might <laughs> if you just saw peanut butter for the first time not having grown up on it. Uh, but the kids love it. They love the taste. They love, And then the, the mothers are able to come around seeing how much their kids like it. It is so impressive, Ted. What an incredible thing you've done. I mean, I as I said, I lived in, in Brazil. I lived in Spain. I got to go much of South America. And 
what you're doing in that program is just so impressive, so phenomenal. I really want to encourage you. I'm sure it's extremely hard work. In fact, I do want to ask you this question. I mean, I think I think you probably only have 24 hours in your day. Maybe you have more. But <laughs> when, when I think about the work that you do as a professor, as an author, and you have a family and other outside interests, um, I think there's a lot to manage there. So I also can imagine that you must have domestic and international volunteers to manage. I can imagine there's probably non-governmental organizations to interface with and for-profit organizations. That is enormous to handle. So how do you handle all those different personalities and kind of keep this thing going down the road? Well, that's a, a good question. The million-dollar question? <laughs> I, I'm not sure I do it well all of the time. Uh, I'm pretty sure that my family would say I, I don't always do it well. Uh, but And I think that you could relate to this. Uh, if... If you've got many different things going, a there's a there's a vitality to that, right? Wearing different hats and being able to keep your toes in lots of different ponds. And I'm the sort of person who gets energized by uh, doing different things. So there, there's that angle to it as well. But if you're doing things that are meaningful, mm. if you're doing things that are important, uh, it, it gives you the energy to uh, to squeeze all of that time out of your day. I also happen to have a, a, a wonderful staff in all of my operations here at Vanderbilt and, and in Guatemala with our Money Plus operations, and that makes a huge difference if you can really trust the people that you're working with. Uh, it is it is a lot of work, but I always uh, I always tell people, you know, I would rather have too much on my my plate than to ever be bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, my kids are very tired of me saying that <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Well, even just listening to the cadence of your voice, right? I can learn so much about a person Just listening to how they talk, the words they choose There's a lot of energy going on in there, Ted I mean, <laughs> there's a lot there So I can, I can imagine it does take a lot to fuel that So that makes sense to me Thank you <laughs> Uh, now, one thing I have to ask, too, is since I have been involved, as you say, you know, if you had known in 2008, you know, what you know now, maybe you would have actually gone down this path. Who knows? Probably you would have, knowing you. But uh, when I think about what I've done in, in small organizations trying to raise money and such, I mean, that's just such a hard feat. And you've got, you know, you're managing this from afar and various other things happening as well. And so when I think about this Money Plus program, Money Plus program, excuse me, let me say it right, Money Plus program. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine you must have a ton of volunteers, and and they put a lot of themselves into this, and this is impacting people's livelihoods. It's impacting how mothers raise their children. Um, So from a nonprofit perspective, um, there's a need, I would imagine, to keep raising money. So what's happening there for you? How are you doing that? And do you have any, Uh, any hurdles for you in that way? Absolutely, and I'm glad you ask. Uh, yes, absolutely. We're, we're almost always, you know, every month I worry about making our payroll and having the, the books balanced. You know, we're always, like many small nonprofits or many small startups, we're always on the, on the brink of, of failure, I think. Uh, but, <laughs> and so we do. We have a need and we try and raise money, especially in our early days. Uh, and we, I still consider ourselves to be very early days. We do have a model. However, uh, right now we produce about a ton of this per month. Uh, we hope to get up to uh, 14 tons uh, mm. fairly soon. And our model is that we're producing this and we're selling it to clinics and to nonprofit organizations in Guatemala who then distribute it. Mm. 
And so we hope to make this a financially sustaining uh, social enterprise so that the revenue that we get from selling this product mm-hmm. can then not only pay for production uh, but pay for the development of, of other products as well. Charity is important. I've, I've put a lot of my own money into this project, as you might imagine. You know, I'm yep. not looking for for praise, but that's just the way it goes on these things. We need, and we all, I think, giving is something really, really important. It's not sustainable for any particular problem. Uh, you know, the the world may be focused on AIDS last year and on malnutrition this year, and who knows next year. Uh, and so, to really have long term solutions to to problems like malnutrition, we've got to work with the market and not just depend on uh, charity, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, At the same those... time, we, we need donations and oh, people yes. are, are very free to go to our website, moneyplus.org, and, 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 and contribute to us, and, and we welcome that and need it. But we hope to get to a point where we don't need that. Well, I was going to ask that, if you don't mind. We're getting close to being where we have to have to wrap up here, but I do want to understand just quickly, briefly, where do you get the, 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 the majority of your funding? Is it, uh, is it major- individual contributions or...? The majority of our funding is contributions. My partner, uh, Steve Moore, and I have been uh, funding a lot of this uh, to, to date, and we hope to... Uh, uh, going forward, we hope to make this into a, uh, a self-sustaining uh, enterprise. Okay, great. Well, in our last, my last question for you before we have to wrap up here is, I think it might be useful just to let you tell us any final pearls of wisdom that you might want to share with our listeners. We've had a great conversation about your book, about your program, uh, about your own, your own career. What else would you like to leave our, our listeners with today? Oh, wow. That's a big question, Elise. Uh, although I will say, we are, I work in a university. We're at the end of the academic year. We're about to set off our new class of students. And uh, what I always tell my students is the trick to life, or at least my trick to life, is keeping as many doors open as long as possible. Uh, so leaving yourself open to changing mid-career or, uh, you know, just sort of leaving all the doors open. So having a lot of possibilities okay. and not being scared of doing something that might pay a little less, but that is rewarding in other ways. Um, okay. So those are, those are my, my lessons. Okay, what a great way to finish, and I completely applaud that. We're, we've come to the end of our hour already, so thank you, Professor Fisher, for being on the show with us and sharing your journey on how you got into your field, talking about the work you've been doing in your book, and this program in, in Guatemala. It's been amazing. I've learned a lot. I, I feel like you have been a breath of fresh air in many ways for me as well, personally. So, listeners, if you want to learn more about him, you can go to his own website, tedfisher.org. You can also look for him on the vanderbilt.edu site as well. It's been a great conversation. I look forward to convening with you again next week. Remember, work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 